Hey, good morning, Christ City Church. Uh, I pray that you're keeping warm. Pray that you're doing well on the 16th day of 2022. Uh, also, just personally, I want to uh, say thank you to all of you who've reached out and who've prayed for my family as they've recovered from COVID. I uh, just want to give an update. Everybody's doing fine. Everybody's on the mend by God's grace. So thank you for, uh, for the prayers and the encouragement. Before we jump into our text, uh, I, just, I do want to say I, I hope and pray that you will join us this afternoon as we join with D.C. Unity and Justice, with First Rock Baptist Church and other ministries and churches from across D.C. for the service honoring Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and his legacy. Listen, we, we won't on, only be honoring Dr. King's memory, but also giving much-needed consideration to the work yet to do in the journey towards racial justice. Even as we remember and as we reflect, we also have to be a people that look soberly at the ongoing ways that racism affects our city and our world. Voting rights, mass incarceration, education, so many spheres of life in America continue to reflect the values of Jim Crow rather than the values of God's kingdom. And so, as a hopeful people, as a, as a prophetic people, as a people led by the liberating spirit of God, let us gather together to pray and to worship and to remember and to be sent out to continue in God's work of justice. Amen. Amen. I, I do hope that you're able to make it today. You can find the link to join us this afternoon in the chat and in the comments below. Last week, we began a new sermon series, a sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. I've got to tell you, for much of this year and for part of next year, we're going to spend the majority of our time walking through this amazing New Testament book. Pastor Justin opened our series by zeroing in on Jesus' opening words in Mark's Gospel. In verse 15 of chapter 1, Jesus says, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. What Jesus begins with is the call to repent and to believe the good news that God's kingdom was on the move. Uh, this, was, this was Jesus' thesis statement for Mark's gospel. In last week's sermon, Pastor Justin noted that to repent was to, was to change direction. It was to alter the trajectory of one's thinking and one's living. And this is what Jesus is calling us to do, to, to repent, to stop uh, going in one direction and to begin traveling in another direction. And the reason for this life-altering call was because the kingdom of God is near and is nearing. God's kingdom has arrived and is arriving in Mark 1, verses 16 through 39, it's a continuation of the first 15 verses. If the opening verses establish this, uh, these dual themes of Mark, of, of repent, the kingdom is near, then the rest of chapter 1 is to display these dual themes. Namely, what does repentance look like and what the kingdom looks like when it's displayed. To, to use Christ City language, what Mark is wanting to say is, what does the kingdom look like in every life and in every sphere of life? After having established the thesis, after, after laying out the premise of Jesus' life on earth, Mark now aims to lay alongside this thesis his proofs. He wants, to, he wants to juxtapose these stories of repentance and kingdom alongside Jesus' teaching on repentance and, kingdom and the kingdom's nearness. Uh, and first up are stories of repentance. What we see in Mark 1, 16 through 20 we find the story of Jesus calling his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Um, these are two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, and, and all four of them are fishermen by trade. Let's look at Mark uh, 1, beginning in verse 16. 
As Jesus walked beside the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse 17, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Now, I realize that in the passage, you might be saying, hey, yo, like, where's Peter? Like, the text says Simon and his brother Andrew. I don't see no Peter in here. Well, here's the thing. Simon's name later in the Gospels is changed to Peter by Jesus. And so most of the time, this man is simply called Peter. Uh, Sometimes he's referred to by biblical scholars by both names, Simon Peter. But it's the same guy, different names. Um, There's a few things for us to notice uh, in this opening section. First, it's the dramatic change in direction that these men took. And then second, it's their understanding of this invitation to follow. So first, let's take a look at the change. Um, In the story, in the passage, Jesus rolls up on these four men and they're fishing. Uh, And they're sort of in two different spots. The two brothers are in two different spots in the Sea of Galilee. Peter and Andrew are fishing in one place and then kind of farther down, Jesus finds James and John. Now, when Jesus comes to the first pair of brothers... He simply kind of walks up to them and he says to them, come and follow me. And then he asks to them, and I'll make you fishers of men or I'll send you out to fish for people. Jesus is contextualizing his calling on their lives with an analogy of fishing for people, with an analogy that would be obvious to them. Mark's gospel doesn't give a whole lot of the backstory or the context for this calling, but from other gospels and from other places in the Bible, our sense is that this isn't the first encounter that these men have had with Jesus. Presumably they were familiar with with John the Baptist's prophecies that he was making a way for another. They may have heard about Jesus' baptism and some of the miracles surrounding it. So there is some context. Even still, it, it isn't as though these fishermen had a lot of context, but they knew enough. They knew enough about Jesus to know that when he walks up on their shore and invites them to follow him, invites them to to repent of the direction that they're going and to begin a new path, a new pattern, a a new journey alongside Jesus. They they knew enough in that moment to say yes. So often that's how it is with matters of life and of faith. We've got questions. And some questions are massive. We need answers and we need not be... Uh, fools are foolish and so we ask and we explore and we examine and we interrogate but so many times in life and in faith there are just more questions that remain we don't have all the answers and we won't have all the answers and at some point we have to come to a place of reckoning and an honest asking do i have enough answers do i have enough answers to follow the spirit's guidance in one matter of life or another do i have enough information to move forward in trusting the things that i do not know to the god who knows everything and is yet so much a mystery to me it is right and honest for us to consider all of the things that we don't know or are yet to know even as we recognize the limitations of our knowing peter andrew james and john they knew something They knew enough. They laid down their nets. They left the path of vocation and family and profession that they were on. And they began following a different path with Jesus. 
And it wasn't as though they were leaving bad situations. Uh, fishing it was actually a, a decent business in the first century. James and John especially, they, they were leaving uh, their family business. The text says in Mark 1.20, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. And they followed him. These, these little details, they, they let us know that Zebedee was probably a wealthier businessman. He was able to, to hire others to, to work alongside him and, and his two sons. Some scholars surmise that, that perhaps Peter and Andrew themselves may have also been employed by Zebedee, even though they weren't the ones in the boat with him in verse 20. If this is the case, then uh, there would have been a hope and an expectation on Zebedee's part that his sons carry on the family business when he's gone. Zebedee presumably had hoped uh, to work alongside his sons for years, to, to work together to build something together for the life and livelihoods of their families. So when his two boys, when they drop their nets and they begin following this wandering rabbi, I can imagine a sting of disappointment for their father. Sometimes following Jesus is going to take us down roads that disappoint those closest to us. Jesus has a way of, of, of reorienting our values and our affections. He has a way of, of disrupting our planned pursuits and he gives us new pursuits. And that direction, that, that, that repentance... That change of course can sometimes be at odds with the hopes that those around us have for us. And this can even be true when those around us also follow Jesus. My sense is that in those moments, what the Spirit might incline us to do is towards an ongoing faithfulness to that wandering rabbi who has called us to come to him and to follow him. And also to a commitment of kindness and care and prayer for those who experience our commitment to Jesus as an abandonment of them. Our prayer could be that the same spirit that calls us would comfort them and place in their lives a similarly contextualized call to follow the leading of Jesus wherever that leading takes them. Nevertheless, Jesus does call these men, and he calls us for that matter, to follow him. And I think it's important for us to understand what it was that Jesus was actually meaning. You see, in the ancient world, in the first century Jewish context, it wasn't altogether uncommon for religious leaders and religious teachers to have disciples, to have followers. But what that meant was that those followers, that they would literally, physically follow their teachers around. This wasn't like the kind of following that we might imagine now, like 21st century Americans where, you know, we can like follow any number of people on social media or like virtually. Uh, to follow someone, uh, you know, now it's kind of simply means to like scroll through that person's tweets and images and sayings. And, and if we're so inclined, we can like something that they have to say. Or if we're really impressed, then we might even quote them by retweeting their statements. Uh, but that's not what followship meant then. Jesus' call to the disciples to follow him, it was... It was just far more than that. His invitation to follow was in a physical sense as well as in a spiritual sense. It was an invitation to display repentance, to, to physically as well as spiritually change their life's direction and move in a new location. Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they all understood the assignment that this is why they dropped their physical nets, left their physical boats, left the physical shore, left the sea, left their jobs, left their families, left the life that they had known for some number of years, left their plans, left their address, and took up life with Jesus. Because that's what it meant to follow Jesus. 
Now listen, I would submit that this is still what it means to follow Jesus today. Now look, I I realize as soon as I say this, that the wheels kind of begin to turn for some of you and you begin to ask, is he saying that for me to follow Jesus, that means that I have to leave everything behind? Can't I just follow Jesus like right where I am in my current circumstances, in my current situations? And, And I do certainly acknowledge the truth of that reality that yes, God can and does call us to remain right where we are. And that too can be a faithful way to live out our repentance and to live out our followership of Jesus. However, in this passage and in this moment, I think that we have to wrestle with the very legitimate possibility that faithfulness to Jesus might very well mean that you do have to leave your current situation. You do have to leave your current location, that you have to lay aside the nets, that you have to lay aside the obligations and the paths that you have chosen for yourself and head in a direction of less certainty, of less viability, of less fame, of less promise as the world measures promise, but in a direction marked by faith in the one who says to you, come, follow me. I fear that if we don't consider the radical call of this, the radical nature of this call, then we will be wooed into believing that God will simply baptize our own efforts and our plans and our self-actualized purposes for our self-centered lives. The Lord may well say to you, yes, child, the plans that you have, that they are my plans for your life. The direction that you are headed is the direction that I intended all along. But we do well to hold that with an open hand of surrender, trusting that if the Lord of all of our, uh, the Lord of all invites us to surrender all, then we will follow in the repenting footsteps of Peter and Andrew and James and John, and we will surrender our plans, we'll surrender our purposes and pursuits for the sake of God's kingdom. Jesus bursts onto the scene in Mark 1 and he says, repent and believe. And in response, these first disciples say yes. Absolutely yes. Now, two questions that I think that I might, that I would just want to deposit right here is to ask one, how has following Jesus led you to your current location? How has your following of Jesus led to your current location, physically, where you live, vocationally, career-wise, relationally, emotionally, spiritually? Has Jesus led you or have you led you? And then maybe the second question would be more future-oriented. How will following Jesus in 2022 lead you to a different location? Lead you to a different direction, different geography in the world, different geography of the heart or of the soul? These first four disciples, they begin following Jesus, and then Mark trots out a number of circumstances that are intended to show us what the kingdom is like, and especially what kind of king Jesus is like in verses 21 through 39. In those verses, Jesus begins teaching in a synagogue. And then he casts out a demon, and then he heals a sick woman. And in each circumstance, what the gospel writer Mark is attempting to show us is what God's kingdom is like and how it is coming near through Jesus. The way that Mark does this is by bringing into the foreground of the stories Jesus' authority. And you see Mark wanting to demonstrate what God's kingdom is like. And one of the ways that he wants to do that is by showing how the king of this kingdom, Jesus, how the king of this kingdom has authority and uses that authority in order to show what the kingdom is like. In each of the following stories, Jesus shows that he has authority over the scriptures and over evil 
and over the natural world. And consequently, he's demonstrating characteristics that are to be found in the kingdom that he is inaugurating. Now listen, before we look at each of these stories, each of these quick stories, I have to say there's a tension that I experience here, and you might experience it as well. And here's the thing. I I have trouble with authority. I have trouble talking about authority, including Jesus' authority. Um, I think it's because, like, my own maverick spirit. I think it's because I'm a product of, like, a culture raised on a steady diet of distrust of authority. Um, Some of my heroes are those that have rebelled against authority or at least questioned authority. I mean, I've even named my children after biblical prophets who spoke prophetically and powerfully to those in authority. I also want to acknowledge that, that there's a rightful suspicion on authority, especially when it comes uh, to religious authority, because of the ways that authority has been abused and used to harm and hurt and used for selfish motivations by those in authority to secure power and privileges. So we together, we, we might experience a measure of tension with Mark's highlighting of Jesus' authority and Jesus' kingship over this kingdom that he says is near and is good news. But the thing that alleviates this tension for me is a recognition of how Jesus uses his authority and what he uses it for. Namely, how he uses it to usher in healing and freedom. In each instance in Mark 1 and throughout the Gospels, when Jesus exercises his authority over the world or or over a circumstance, it is to usher in healing. It's to usher in liberation. And And, well, to use Jesus' words, it's to usher in salvation. What Mark might say to our misgivings about authority is, listen, look at Jesus' actions. Don't just hear his words or read his words, but look at what Jesus does in concert with what he says. And what we will find is that Jesus' kingship and his kingdom is an altogether different kingdom than any other power-seeking kingdom of the world. So let's look at the passage. Mark continues the story beginning in verse 21. Mark 1.21 says, They went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. It wasn't uncommon for those teaching in Jewish synagogues to, um, to be lay leaders or just community leaders. So Jesus teaching at the synagogue in Capernaum uh, which is still in existence, by the way. You can still go there and visit it. It wasn't out of the ordinary. It wasn't a, an out-of-the-ordinary event. What was recognizably different, though, was the way that Jesus taught. You see, most teachers, they would expound on the law, the Old Testament passages, and, and they worked to explain the proper way to translate and apply the law. They would talk about the ways the law was used in their traditions and customs. But Jesus' approach, as we'll see later in the Gospel, It wasn't just to outline the ways to follow the law, but rather it centered on what it meant to follow the one who gave the law. This is what would get Jesus into so much trouble with religious leaders of the day. Because Jesus would would follow this message up with the truth that he was the very one that they needed to follow. This is why he taught with authority, because he was the authority. He was the one who gave the law in the first place. He was the one to whom the law pointed. He was the one who was able to give what the law couldn't. New life, healing, freedom. So Jesus had authority over the scriptures. 
Jesus also had authority over evil. While Jesus was teaching, Mark 1, verse 23, it says, Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know you are the Holy One of God. Now look, I've been preaching for a while now, and, and I've got to tell you, I've had some things happen in the middle of sermons. One time I had a guy in the middle of a sermon that I was giving, he just stood up and started taking off all of his clothes. It was awkward. Uh, one time when I was preaching, like I almost fainted. I'm like clinging to the music stand, praying I didn't fall over. I mean, good heck, even like during our live streams, like over the past year, we've had like car crashes and fist fights and like broken furniture and a guy in leader hosen blowing a 10-foot horn outside the window doing communion. Like we've just had a few things happen. But yo, look, first time I'm preaching and a guy stands up possessed by demons and he starts like shouting at me, listen, honest to goodness, I'm going to need some of y'all ministers, deacons, elders, like prayer warriors, armor bearers. I need, I need some of y'all to stand to attention because that's going to be a day for sure. And look, if we catch that stuff on YouTube, Man, man, y'all better hit all the like and subscribe buttons, leave a message, you know, pray me up because, you know, your boy's going to need some help. All right. I'm going to need like the Holy Ghost to show up for sure. But listen, and that's what happens. A man is under the influence of what is translated here as an unclean spirit, an unholy spirit. The man is being controlled by spiritual influences that that, that have their origins in lies and in oppression and in ungodly control. And it prompts the man to shout at Jesus. I think it's, it's instructive for us to know that the first time that a demon-possessed person shows up in Mark's gospel, that it's in the context of a religious gathering. It's in the context of a church service. Because unfortunately, there, there are impure spirits that occupy churches and church services and church people. Spirits that parade as the Holy Spirit, but that can be the spirit of condemnation or the spirit of greed or the spirit of pride or the spirit of rejection or the spirit of supremacy or the spirit of self-righteousness. And those unclean spirits can exact influence and control, even influence and control over those that are otherwise seeking to follow Jesus. And yet what Mark is showing us is that Jesus has authority over those spirits He's greater and he's stronger and he's more winsome and he's more powerful. And that even those spirits know this truth. That's why they identify Jesus as the Holy One in contrast to their unholiness. That Jesus is the Holy One of God. Look, I realize some of us may, if, if we're honest, we'd say that we too can come under the influence of unclean spirits, spirits of fear or pride or arrogance, spirits of control or lust, and they lead us away from the life that God calls us to. What Mark might say to us is repent. The kingdom of God is near. And Jesus has authority over that spirit. Jesus, like the man in the synagogue, can free you from that which seeks your oppression and not your liberation. And perhaps the Spirit might use you and empower you to participate in the liberation of others. Jesus has authority over evil and over the spiritual forces of evil. And thirdly, I think Mark highlights that Jesus has authority over, over the natural world. Jesus leaves the synagogue having preached the scriptures and exercised demonic forces. And he leads, and then he heads home with his four disciples. He actually goes to Peter and Andrew's house where they find Peter's mother-in-law who's ill. Now, I realize this may be a kind of a side point, but I think it's an important point nonetheless. Peter's married, and his in-laws live with him. 
think so often in like religious imagery or icons, or even when we just imagine the disciples, we imagine them as solitary people with, with their only community like as the other disciples. That's just not the case for them. It certainly wasn't the case for Peter and for Andrew. Peter had a wife. He had an extended family. Andrew had a sister-in-law. And they lived together in close proximity. There was a, a family and a community that cared about Peter and his brothers. Just as James and John had a father, Zebedee, and co-workers that they worked alongside at one time. Let us take care to remember that these people in the scriptures, that they're not so distant from us. They're not so distant from our own lived experiences. They had families as wonderful and as dysfunctional as our own may be. They lived in neighborhoods with like noisy and loud neighbors. They worked in jobs that they liked and that they hated. They, they weren't so distant than us. Let us take care to humanize the disciples. Anyway, Jesus goes with his disciples. They go to Peter's house and there's his mother-in-law. And she's sick. Jesus takes her hand and heals her body and the fever that's ravaged her body. Mark wants us to know that, that the kingdom that Jesus is instituting is a kingdom of healing. After Jesus heals uh, Peter's mother-in-law, he, Mark describes the aftermath this way in verses 34. It says, The whole town gathered at the door, and then Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Jesus would heal he would heal people. He would free people because he wanted us to know that these were the marks of his kingdom. That he is one to whom we can bring our illness. He is one to whom we can bring our brokenness. We can bring our damage to him, our, our broken bodies, our wounded minds, our broken hearts. That Jesus can take all of that and that Jesus offers healing. And maybe it's not always in the ways that we want or that we imagine, but it's healing nonetheless, nonetheless. Jesus had authority over the natural world. He had authority over the brokenness of the world. That was under his authority as well. Mark wants us to know what repentance looks like. So he tells of what it looked like in the lives of those first followers. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Mark wants us to know what God's kingdom looks like. So he shows us how Jesus demonstrates authority over the scriptures by proclaiming good news and then demonstrating that good news through the work of liberation and healing. I think maybe the paired questions for us here would be, first, where are we as followers of Jesus proclaiming God's kingdom? And then where are we displaying God's kingdom? Where are we proclaiming and where are we displaying? Are, are we faithfully proclaiming God's good news to one another in the context of relationships and small groups? Are we reminding one another of God's goodness and God's continual invitation to repent, to the continual invitation to reorder our lives around God's kingdom? This is precisely why small groups and communities of faith are so necessary because they become the locations of our shared proclamation of good news to each other because we forget and we lose sight and we need others to remind us of who we are in Jesus. But it's not the only places. We need to be faithful proclaimers of God's good news in the community as we address the powers and principalities in our city that are bent on oppression. It is, is why we join with other churches under the Washington Interfaith Network in order to advocate for affordable housing, demanding that the city cannot just continually celebrate record budget surpluses that have been secured on the backs of the poor. These become places of our proclamation 
of our proclamation to repent and to believe that the kingdom is near. Yet, proclamation isn't enough. If we're to follow Jesus, we must also be demonstrators of the kingdom, just as Jesus was. We must, we must demonstrate uh, the kingdom through acts of compassion and acts of mercy and acts of justice. This is why we partner with organizations like DC 127, organizations of faith that are seeking to care for vulnerable families and children. There's a training this week if you want to serve with them. Because in God's kingdom, children have a home and they're cared for. It's why we care for refugees and immigrants from Latin America and Afghanistan because in God's kingdom, hospitality matters. In God's kingdom, access to food and, and health care matters. In God's kingdom, reading levels matter. And, and this is why we uh, reach out to our immediate and physical neighbors, those that live on either side of us. Not because being neighborly is the cause du jour, but because it's the way that we live out our repentance. It's how we live into our followership of Jesus and work to continually undermine the temptation that we, that we all have, that all that we have is our own, and that we are our own kings rather than living into God's kingdom. In the opening verses of Mark's gospel, we find Jesus inviting us to reorder our lives around him and his kingdom. And then to illustrate the point, we see four disciples doing just that. They repent. They, they begin heading out in a different direction alongside the one who governs all directions. And this invitation remains for us to come to Jesus, to follow Jesus, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, and to demonstrate God's kingdom to the world around us. That's it. That is the invitation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that wherever it is that we are, that as we're hearing this word, as we're looking into Mark's gospel spirit, that you would stir in us, that we would hear you saying to us today, come, follow me. And God, that we would, that we would say yes, that we would uh, walk in similar steps as those first disciples, that we would lay down whatever it is in our hands and we would say, I'm following you, Lord. With my life, with my heart, with my soul, with my vocation, with my emotion, with my strength, with all of who I am, I'm following you. God, if that requires that we change a location, that we change a, a vocation or a direction, that we change a relationship, that we, that we change a mindset, that we change our minds, God, that we would do that, that we would surrender those things, even if they've become dear to us, God, let us hold you more dearly, more closely. God, I pray that in whatever area of our life, in all areas of our lives, that we hear you in this moment saying to us, come, follow me, that we would without haste and without delay, that we would follow you. In Jesus' name.